Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. On June 12th, 2016, 49 people were killed and 53 others were wounded in a mass shooting inside the Pulse nightclub, a popular LGBTQ gathering spot in Orlando, Florida. Ana Escamani organized to help the survivors, rallied against homophobia, and was one of the many Central Floridians who got a tattoo to symbolize a determination to honor the dead and fight like hell for the living. When she got that tattoo of the word Orlando in rainbow colors, Anna told a local reporter, This tattoo is a forever reminder of purpose. The tattoo reminds me that we must step up and create real change. Two years later, Anna Escamani was elected to the Florida State Legislature, where she is indeed fighting for real change on LGBTQ rights, gun violence, reproductive freedom, and so many other issues. This remarkable activist, the daughter of Iranian immigrants who helped to inspire her passion for justice, is our guest this week on Next Left. Ana Eskamani, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. It's an honor to be here. So you've dedicated your public service, at least in, in many senses, to your mother. Tell us about her. Oh, I love to. Um, I think about her every second. Um, my mother's name is Nasreen. She was an immigrant from Iran, just like my dad, and uh, came to this country in search of the American dream. They actually came from two different parts of Iran, but met in a donut shop in Central Florida. And my mom recognized my dad's accent and started speaking to him in Farsi, and the rest was history. Um, They made Orlando their home, and I just always looked up to my mom as someone who was really brave, courageous. She worked really hard, John, to the point where uh, the only time she could see her kids was like an hour lunch break when she was at Kmart. And there would be nights, too, where my sister and I, my twin sister and I would be at Kmart helping her fold clothes and cleaning up the store so she'd get home at a decent time. And um, as our family was working to achieve the aspirations of purchasing a new home, you know, trying to be more financially secure, everything shook when our mom was diagnosed with cancer. And I was 10 years old when that first happened and really became one of her immediate caretakers. And again, just admiring her strength, but also, you know, experiencing the pain of her illness, which ebbed and flowed. You know, she had so many surgeries, radiation, chemo, And unfortunately, in 2004, we lost her to that battle. And I was 13 years old and made a decision to honor her life, the act of empowering others. And I've been doing that ever since. And there's a part of, I think, your initial campaign video where you mentioned what I thought was just a a very poignant reality, because for immigrant families, so often homeownership is a big deal and creating your own home. And she spent only two nights in the home. Is that right? Two nights in the home that you're... Yeah, for, um, you know, when I was first uh, growing up in Central Florida, we lived in apartments. And uh, the first home my parents purchased was small. And uh, my sister and I, we shared a room till we were about 13 years old. And my mom really wanted a house where each one of her kids would have their own bedroom. And we have an older brother as well. And there was a moment where three of us were living in one room because my um, uh, family from Iran was visiting us, but trying to gain citizenship. So you know, they, they, they took my brother's room. My brother moved in with us. I mean, it was a pretty crowded household full of love, but not ideal, right, for your, your kids to invite their friends over. My mom was always kind of embarrassed by that. 
So she really envisioned a different type of life. And as we were achieving that vision, she spent two nights there and actually went into kind of like a coma. I mean, we had to, uh, I remember coming home from school and our dad telling us that um, mom was back at the hospital because she wouldn't wake up that morning. And it was, you know, like so many families, the dynamics are always so complex. I remember each one of us like going to our separate rooms and then hearing our dad crying and us just like rushing out to comfort one another and uh, go to the hospital immediately. So it's it's a pain that I keep with me every day. I, I tell folks, you know, I have a chip on my shoulder because of it, but it it definitely inspires me to um, have empathy for others and it's built my resilience. And I think as, a, as an elected official, as a young progressive, you have to have both. Like you have to lead with empathy, but also practicing resilience because um, being an elected official is, is not easy and maintaining your authentic self is not easy, but my identity and my, my personal experiences give me the foundation that makes it easier. And it's interesting because Orlando, where you serve, where you represent, is such a place of incoming. It's one of the fastest growing cities and metro areas in the country. And so many of the people who come there are immigrants from outside the country, and then also people from other places in the U.S., uh, such as Puerto Rico. And so you do have an experience that connects you with the reality of the place you represent. Absolutely. Something that's so special about Orlando is that it's it's still a young city that's very malleable. I I feel like, you know, as a now a 29-year-old, like I can have an impact in shaping our community and our interns who are some in high school, some just starting college, had that same opportunity because the city is is still at that point where we can we can influence this direction in a meaningful way. Um I will say that our district, District 47, is 85% white. So when we ran for office, um we 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 spoke as our authentic selves and I was I was really just so grateful that our district, which is pretty established, right? These are folks who, um, you know, we have um, Orlandonians who've been here for generations <laughs> and it's a flip seat and yet they still voted for us overwhelmingly. And I do think that our immigrant story, my personal story of finding power and pain is something that folks really resonate with. And I'm sure it also ties to the fact that this district is home to Pulse Nightclub, where we lost 49 mostly queer black and brown people to the act of gun violence. And um, that's another instance of Orlando coming together to push back against bigotry and hate, to call for common sense gun safety legislation. And that's been um, a part of my rallying cry before I even ran for office. And it was another uh, commonality, another value that I could share with our district and folks just you know hugged right back in the process. And I wanted to ask you about the fact that the Pulse Nightclub is located in your district. Um, that was such a jarring moment, not just for Florida, but for the whole country. Were you there in the district or in that region at the time? Yes, I was actually. And everyone, and I think everyone around the world, honestly, remembers where they were yeah. when Pulse happened, because um, it does impact folks so uniquely, especially if you're in the community, but also if you identify as LGBTQ+, no matter where you live, I think it, it impacts you and you, you remember that moment. Um, in my case, I was attending a, a event Saturday night. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like an old lady, so <laughs> I went to, you know, I was at a fundraiser type of event. And then I, I came home and um, my twin sister, Ida Escamani, who worked at Equality Florida at the time, actually had just come back from a 
uh, her first time visiting Europe. And so she was already sleeping because of being just the, you know, the travel and the layovers and stuff. So I remember like knowing she was home, but sleeping. And so I, I just went to bed and I woke up. I woke up at around 3 a.m. to the sounds of helicopters outside because we live, you know, at the time, less than two miles away from Pulse. And the night before was another shooting in the district. There was a shooting at the Plaza Live with a, um, a young artist being uh, murdered. And my first reaction, like many of us in our community, was, oh, another shooting, because it literally just happened. And um, I went on Facebook, and I saw one of my really good LGBTQ friends post about Pulse. And that's when it hit me that this was something really, really different. And I got right up and turned on the TV and just watched, you know, the news come in like everyone else. And then when my sister woke up, I told her what happened and she jumped straight to work. And, you know, my twin sister is actually the one who started the Pulse GoFundMe campaign that raised $9 million. And I did my part, you know, as a working at Planned Parenthood at the time to show up as an accomplice to the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, we not only helped to raise dollars, donate blood, collect gift cards for families who are staying at hospitals, but we committed ourselves to action and hosted a a, a sit-in at Senator Marco Rubio's office about a month after the massacre, holding him accountable. Because if you might remember, Senator Rubio was not going to run for office anymore and made his decision at the nightclub that we needed him for some reason. And we really just felt like that was such a um, a really politically motivated decision that was on the back of trauma. <laughs> and we wanted to hold him accountable to it. And representing this district, which has had this trauma, that puts a, a particular responsibility on you, not just on issues of LGBTQ concern, but also gun violence. I mean, your district has experienced one of the one of the most noted instances of gun violence in the history of this country. Yes, it's true. It's true. And we have to be unapologetic and bold about it. And it's interesting you bring up that question because after the 2016 election cycle, I, I was so upset waking up the next day. And I was very engaged in the campaign cycle, working at Planned Parenthood and doing work with the Action Fund. So I was I was very much, you know, head and heart in the process and woke up that next day in tears, feeling that the country I call home had completely rejected me. And um, it took me a while to build the comfort to run for office. But I'll tell you, one of the thoughts that I had running in my head was the concern about running against a moderate Republican, because at the, at the time, this seat had a, 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 quote, moderate Republican. And so there were some Democrats that were like, oh, you know, he's a good guy and et cetera, et cetera. But then I thought about Pulse and I thought about the fact that we don't need a wishy-washy moderate Republican or wishy-washy Democrat in this seat. Like We need a strong Democrat who is going to stand up to the National Rifle Association, who's going to call out special interests when she sees them and fight for, for gun safety policy. And at the time, you know, our incumbent refused to address this issue. And it was one of the motivating factors for me, the fact that Pulse Nightclub is here in our community and we can't just sit idly by while we lose 96 people every day to gun violence. And you had a recent incident uh, as a legislator. You, you've just in recent weeks, the governor, the Republican governor of your state did a memorial to Pulse that didn't mention the LGBTQ community. Yeah. 
Yeah, he released a proclamation um, the eve of the three-year mark of Pulse and did not mention LGBTQ or even Latinx members of our community. And you noted that you you were the one who recognized that as I if I'm reading the reports correctly and really and and frankly made a big deal about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I was pissed <laughs> when I saw that <laughs> uh, the, 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 the night before and immediately went towards social media, tweeting out a photo of his proclamation in contrast to then Governor Rick Scott's proclamation. And I think what what pissed me off more is that, I mean, the proclamation was almost verbatim of Rick Scott's, except erasing those words, because even Rick Scott included identities of those directly impacted. So just drawing the contrast between the two set the stage for some huge social media pressure. And by the next day, um, it had really built up. It was getting press attention. And um, within hours, the governor had tweeted out a statement on Twitter integrating LGBTQ in his message. And then maybe an hour later, a new proclamation was released. And then a few hours after that, the governor announces that he's coming to Pulse Nightclub. So um, I was I was very proud of our efforts. You know, if people ever doubt the power of one person, that's an example of how um, one person turns into many. And it's funny, there, there were many times in the past of folks, you know, asking me, well, what are you, a freshman Democrat, going to be able to get done in Tallahassee? Because the, the environment is very driven by the majority party. Um, and I think that's an, a perfect example of what we're able to get done um, when we lean on our collective voice over just one. And um, sure enough, the governor came and we greeted him at Pulse Nightclub and we we were able to introduce him to a Pulse survivor, Brayden Wolf, who's also an advocate on issues of gun safety. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith, who's one of my colleagues, who serves um, a neighboring district but identifies as a as an LGBTQ Latino, um, was there with us. And we thank the governor for the correction. And um, I told him that I look forward to real policy change and having that conversation with them because words are one thing, but this is a state where our workers have no protections for being gay. And we've been pushing to pass the Competitive Workforce Act for over a decade now, which would be legislation that would update Florida's civil rights language to ensure that LGBTQ plus folks are also protected from discrimination in employment, public housing, et cetera. Um, so we have a lot more work to do. And I'm hopeful that this moment will remind our governor of the power of these issues and how we're going to hold him accountable to it. We'll be back after these messages. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine. And right now, we've got a special deal just for Next Left listeners. You can save over 90% on a digital subscription and get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 an issue. You can find it at thenation.com slash podcasts subscribe. That's thenation.com forward slash podcast subscribe. Every time you support The Nation, it helps us make this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a subscriber. Now it's time for a word about Joe Biden. Although he's ahead in the polls... 
He has no place to go except down. That's what Robert Borisage says on our sister podcast at The Nation. Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener, the coolest man in L.A. That's Robert Borisage on the Democrats After the First Debates on the Start Making Sense podcast, political talk without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani. Obviously, your governor is not someone who's of your party and certainly not of your your ideological bent. And one of the issues that's come to a head in Florida and a number of other states is, is reproductive freedom. And this is one of your routes of entry into politics, isn't it? Because you became active very young with Planned Parenthood. Absolutely. Yeah. Like one in five American women, I was a Planned Parenthood patient when I was 18 years old because my mom had passed away. I had no one to talk to about birth control, about dating, about intimate partner violence. Found myself looking for answers at Planned Parenthood. Main appointment by myself, walked in alone And though I was so nervous and anxious, you know, to um, be in that type of environment um, was just filled with so much gratitude as I met the staff there and every question was answered with such kindness. And I left with a method of contraception that was right for me and continued to volunteer at Planned Parenthood when I was in college, serving as a health center escort, walking patients in from their cars to our front doors when there were protesters outside and then was hired to work at Planned Parenthood in 2012 and served there for about six years. During that time, too, you know, I got my master's at the University of Central Florida, and I really just dived deep into the world of, of advocacy, specifically on abortion access and helping patients share their stories. Because one in four American women have had an abortion in this country, and yet it's still so stigmatized. And so doing whatever I could to help share stories, to help bring patients to Tallahassee, and I'll tell you, every every fight we would lose, no matter how many patients we brought up, no matter how many points we made, hours of testimony, hours of debate, watching lawmakers on the House floor, you know, debate this issue like a like a football <laughs> was always so frustrating to me because at the end of the day, directly impacted folks are going to suffer. It's not going to be politicians who suffer. It's going to be the the women in this state trans men in this state who might need an abortion and continue to be tossed around as if it's a game. And and that that experience helped me realize that politicians are not untouchable, that we needed to elect different type of people because the wrong people were in office. And it definitely was, you know, one of those pieces in the puzzle that allowed me to give myself permission to run for office, which, you know, for women, it can be very difficult to give yourself permission to do that. And that was one of the pieces in the mix that eventually, you know, added to my courage to make that decision. And you did something quite remarkable. You flipped a district that had been held by a moderate Republican who had, had in fact, worked to keep the Republican brand, if you will, uh, strong in that district. Well, and I will say the we actually chased out the incumbent because he decided to run for Congress right. before we even announced. But to your point, we were going to go up against him. Like that was the plan. But when he he knew we were coming, and so he decided to run for Congress. And eventually, we did face pretty harsh opposition. I mean, our opponent, his name was Stockton Reeves the Six, and he was very well established in the district, part of the district, and had 
self-wealth. And so he had funded his campaign at over half a million dollars doing negative attack mail, three TV commercials that were all negative. So he was very much committed to um, trying not just not just win the campaign, but destroy destroy who I am in the eyes of our district and really just saturate, you know, his perspective on everyone. And we were, we were always unapologetic. And I have to tell you, the consultants were not um, a category of folks I relied on because <laughs> I found that a lot of their feedback was not helpful. I mean, a lot of their feedback wasn't, wasn't maintaining authenticity. And I actually did keep a running list in the very beginning of like feedback I was getting And, you know, it was comments ranging from like how to wear my hair to I need to change how I speak and don't don't bring up, quote, embarrassing stories like like my birth control story. Like that is something I shouldn't talk about. Right. I mean, it was just it was really just like shallow feedback and feedback that spoke to why, in my eyes, Democrats kept losing races is that we're not allowing ourselves to be authentic. We're trying to fit into a box. And part of my mission running for office was to redefine what a winner looks like. And um, I wanted to be myself because I didn't want to get to Tallahassee and have to act a certain way. You know, I wanted to, to always be my authentic self. And we, we ran an activist campaign. Absolutely. We knocked on 40,000 doors. We raised $523,000 from 4,000 individual donations. Um, we participated in protests all the time, whether it was uh, President Trump separating families at the border, um, whether it was the women's marches whether it was supporting March for Our Lives students in their efforts to hold um, a corporation called Publix accountable for giving huge contributions to an NRA sellout gubernatorial candidate. I laid on the floor with them at our Publix grocery store in the district as a demonstration of solidarity and commitment to gun violence. And that was plastered across the district. I would be knocking on doors and see like negative mail about me in the mailbox. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it was such an intimate campaign and, and just so very real for me, um, but it spoke to our values. And um, it was funny, a lot of those mail pieces uh, kind of backfired on our opponent because I would have folks all the time tell me or tell our, our, our volunteers like, yeah, I like her style and things like that. And so, it, you know, it kind of evolved and, and what they weren't, weren't expecting. But at the end of the day, it was um, once more a test of our resiliency, but a reminder to just be yourself. Um, and to speak your truth and do your homework, like work hard and, and folks will folks will really celebrate you for that. Well, at the very least, your opponent upped your name recognition. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and like, it's funny. Again, some consultants would like, you know, send me unsolicited advice and say like, hey, never say your opponent's name. You don't you don't have to acknowledge the negative mail. And I was like, what? No, I want people to know that this is the asshole that's treating me like this, you know? And so one of the efforts that we did was, you know, we every time we got a piece of mail, um, I would always throw it back. And so there was one picture where he um, photoshopped a hammer in my hand. And um, it was so weird. And I don't know what the intent was. It was supposed to make me look scary, I guess. And so I took a photo of it. And I put it on Twitter and I said, oh, is this the hammer I'm supposed to smash the patriarchy with? And, you know, it just took off on a life of its own. And the hammer has become symbolic of our of our mission to the point where we have been gifted hammers. We have a hammer in our <laughs> Tallahassee office. We have one here in the Orlando office. I got a hammer tattoo 
on the back of my ear as a reminder to just be yourself. So, you know, we took every attack um, with stride and I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that they threw everything at us and yet nothing stuck because we didn't let it stick. And, and that hammer is, I think it's on your Twitter handle. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, it, it's everywhere you are. And the hammer tattoo, um, I mean, do you compare tattoos with your fellow legislators? Ah! Or? <laughs> Actually, yeah. If I see a little, if I see a tattoo sticking out of someone's, you know, shirt, I'm like, oh, what's that? So yeah, it becomes a good um Good conversation starter, that's for sure. I actually have three tattoos, so it wasn't my first one, but my tattoos were all very subtle. Um, but one, one of my most important ones is actually a pulse tattoo. It's on my, my wrist, on my right hand, and it says Orlando and Rainbow with the O, the last letter being a heart with a pulse line through it. So I got that tattoo um, two weeks after pulse. And you also, because you come from an immigrant family, and you're an Iranian American. Obviously, the Florida legislature is not dealing too often with foreign policy, one hopes. But you have this, this other part of, of your experience. As we speak, the president and others are, are making lots of noises about Iran. Do you find yourself drawn into those discussions? Do you? It is my duty to be part of those conversations. You know, my first time in Iran was in 2005 to bring my mom's ashes to the Caspian Sea. And majority of my family is still in Iran. So it's very personal for us. And the elevated rhetoric around Iran is <laughs> problematic and seems like an intentional effort by the Trump administration to bring us to war. And though as a legislator at the state level, I'm not dealing with foreign affairs, we get so many messages from Iranians because they see, they see our office as a resource they can trust. And so we get so many emails and direct messages from Iranians, whether they're students in Florida struggling with their visas or Iranians who are on a wait list to get a visa. Their parents are stuck somewhere. We've been working with our, our federal lawmakers to try to provide a pathway for them to get support. But our office is just inundated, you know, with with requests from Iranians and Iranian Americans struggling. And then at the same time, um, the idea of war with Iran is dangerous for our country. And I feel like as as one of the few Iranian Americans elected in this in this country and the first ever in Florida, that it's important that we give this issue a voice from the perspective of those who know the country better than most do. Um, And I've been really humble to be in spaces with other Iranian-American elected officials and advocates, diving deep into the, the point that for many of those who are making decisions about Iran, they've never been to Iran, they don't speak or read Farsi, and they don't have a good grasp of what war with Iran can look like. What's the nationalism energy in Iran, right? There's so many unanswered questions by these uh, administration folks that we have to hold them accountable and ask the tough questions. So, and I've been a long-time advocate too on human rights in Iran. When I was at the University of Central Florida, my twin sister and I were president, vice president of the Iranian student organization. And in 2009, when there were protests in Iran over their fraudulent elections, uh, we were collecting human rights petitions. We were wearing the green wristband as solidarity. So this issue runs deep for me too as an activist. And so I'm doing my best to um, not only lift up the concerns about the administration's approach to Iran, but at the legislature, helping to teach my colleagues about Iran, the Iranian people. And we hosted the first ever Persian New Year party in Tallahassee. The Persian New Year called Nowruz falls in March with the spring equinox. 
And so we did um, a party to celebrate it with with Persian traditions and had over 150 people attend, including 15 lawmakers, three who were Republicans. And I'm really proud of that because I do think, you know, teaching folks at, at a state level who might one day run for Congress or run, you know, to be in a federal position when they know that there's an Iranian American that is one of one of their colleagues, I hope it'll help them think twice about um, supporting rhetoric that is unnecessarily elevated and escalated um, and think about the people of Iran and what would be best for them. You grew up in an immigrant family. Do you listen to Iranian music? How much of your daily life is this? Or So we try to integrate a little bit of Persian culture into, into everything we do. And in our Orlando office, in our Tallahassee office, we have Persian art on the walls. We have a Persian rug. We have um, Persian pillows that that are like ages old. And part of the Persian New Year is actually jumping over fire. And the the part of that symbolism is you give the fire your yellow and your sickness and you take its red, its, its heat, its energy. And so behind me in Tallahassee in my office is a photo of me, like a blown up photo of me jumping over fire. <laughs> and and a part of it is, you know, just demonstrating and sharing our culture. It's a good conversation starter. But I do think it's like a reminder to lobbyists and lawmakers to like take me seriously. <laughs> Watch out. This woman jumps over fire. Exactly. I am unafraid and and always intentional. And so. Um, so, yeah. But but I, I do try to, um, you know, keep track of Iranian uh, Persian news and uh, music. I have a few different um Persian uh, rap artists on my phone and things like that. You mentioned Persian rap artists. Is there anybody we should be listening to? So there's um, a really good band called TikTok, and and like I think a lot of folks need to remember that like young Iranians just want to be young people. Like the majority of the population in Iran is post uh, revolution babies, so they're you know, approaching their 30s, 40s now, and they don't have a connection to the Islamic Republic of Iran at all. Like These are folks that they want to live life like the rest of us. They want to, you know, engage in American artists and, and American TV shows. They want to travel. They want to have a good job. They want to raise a family. Some don't want to raise a family and, and want to live life as independents. I mean, it's it's really just incredible how um, how, how many similarities between us as Americans and the people of Iran. And I, I do think engaging with Persian music and Iranian media can kind of help close those gaps too. Anna Eskamani, you are, your energy and your engagement uh, is very impressive. And, and my sense is you're giving people hope in Florida, across the country and around the world. Thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Well, I'll tell you, I am the sum of all those around me. So thanks for being a part of it and really grateful for the opportunity to share a little bit of Orlando with you today. Join us next week as we take the next left with Seattle Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, but she has a remarkable personal story of coming to the United States from India at the age of 16 and of taking on the Bush and Obama administrations, as well as helping Bernie Sanders to get a broader perspective on the issues. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vanden Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna. 
And you can check that out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week came from Amy Green. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.